Well, joining me now is the uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. That's Tom Barkin from Hughesville, Maryland. Hi there, President Barkin. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on today. So I want to get started with a conversation just about the economic outlook. So obviously this week we had a record amount of new COVID cases, over 180,000. But on the other hand, we've also had positive developments on the vaccine. So Pfizer, BioNTech saying their vaccine today is uh, 95% effective. We got the Moderna news on Monday as well. So both of those things together, net, net, are, are those developments causing you to revise up or, or down your economic outlook? Well, you've got near term and you've got medium term. Uh, obviously, uh, one of the uh, scenarios that we were all worried about uh, one, two, three, four months ago was a second wave scenario. I think if you look at the case rate or the hospitalization rate today, you have to say uh, that it's elevated. And, uh, and I take from it that as cold weather comes and people spend more time inside, uh, the infection rate is gonna increase. And so I think for the next few months, it'll be a challenge. And it'll be a challenge as uh, uh, people try to adapt to the, their perception of increased risk. And I think it'll be a challenge as governments try to adapt to what they can do uh, to handle that. On the positive side, I think these vaccine uh, uh, results have put a light at the end of the tunnel. And most people I talk to suggest it's summer when you're finally going to see the light as opposed to um, next month. But I think that's a very positive thing for businesses who you know, now might see a path to invest. And certainly for some uh, people in those harder hit industries who now might actually see some hope at the end of that, uh, at the end of that ride when we get that vaccine distributed. Now, at the same time, it seems like a lot of businesses and economists, for that matter, are not hanging their hat on that vaccine, saying that it's still going to be some time before we get that, as you just pointed out. But in the meantime, if it is indeed, you know, not until next summer that we get something, would that force the Fed to do more if we're on the trajectory that we're on with the amount of COVID cases and deaths right now? And if so, the Fed having to do more, uh, what might that mean or look like in your view? Well, we're doing quite a lot. We've taken rates uh, down to near zero, as you know. Um, uh, we've put forward guidance in place that says we're going to keep rates low until such time as uh, we're through all this. And uh, we're engaging in asset purchase, which are uh, incredibly high by historical standards. I'd also say that every month we engage in those asset purchases is more stimulus. In other words, we uh, did it last month, but if you do it again next month and the month after, that's more stimulus. And I I think that's a lot of support uh, to the economy. In terms of whether we would do something different or more, let's just see how it goes. I mean, we're projecting a lot. Let's see how it goes. So I want to shift gears now to the framework review, the Fed saying that it'll tolerate inflation rising moderately above its 2% target for some time, in addition to trying to get to maximum employment. Uh, but an important caveat to that, it sounded like, was that the Fed could tighten or adjust its policy if it felt like financial stability risks were emerging in your view, what might be a financial stability risk that could be substantial enough to cause the Fed to, to rethink or recalibrate its policy? Well, um, in this review, we acknowledged, I think, a couple things that were certainly clear to me uh, beforehand and, and perhaps to others. You know, one is that uh, uh, there's nothing bad about low unemployment and the notion of being preemptive with low unemployment without signs of other risks um, was probably not the the move we need to make. And so I think we made that clear. I think uh, I certainly was in the mood of being willing to tolerate moderate overshoots uh, of inflation. I think it made that clear as well. And then I think it made clear that 
uh, a, a sound economy requires financial stability. And so all those came clear uh, in both our, our framework discussion and also our most recent statements, which have said, we'll keep rates low until uh, quite long time, certain conditions on that. And then uh, that'd be true unless we saw risks develop. I think we'll have to see what kind of risks develop. I do personally um, look closely at uh, the implications of lower for longer policies on people's reach for yield behaviors and on the buildup of leverage. And so the thing I personally uh, spend time looking at is leverage and leverage on personal balance sheets and leverage on corporate balance sheets. You know, I'd, I'd point out that while corporate leverage is somewhat up, personal leverage is actually still somewhat down. Uh, we've seen credit card uh, payments actually go down quite a lot over the last uh, six months. Credit card balances go down quite a lot over the last six months. Um, but that's what I focus on. Now, how that plays into you know, what we do with rates or asset purchase or whatever, I think would be to determine. But that's, that's what I look at, because if you're not going to have a sound economy without a stable financial system. And I guess just to be clear, that's not necessarily saying that you see that as the case right now, financial leverage building to a, a level that would be of concern. I mean, we've heard people flag, for example, leverage loans, but um, you know, where do you see, I guess, those pressures right now? Yeah, there are elements that historically elevated, but in total, I don't think leverage at this point is uh, at historically elevated levels. That's what I'm watching. So uh, another part of the framework review is the real focus on inflation. We did get an interesting uh, remarks from Vice Chairman Rich Clarida this week, saying that his approach to uh, personal consumption expenditures, one of those measures of inflation, is going to look at the average PCE using August as kind of the start timeframe, which is when the framework review was unveiled. It wasn't clear to me based off that speech if that's uniform, whether or not each member of the FOMC is beholden to that same interpretation. So I guess from your vantage point as one of the members of the FOMC, is that also your interpretation of how to measure when inflation is moderately above its target? Or are you kind of free within a range to kind of evaluate inflation on your own criteria? Um, well, I think what I'd say first and foremost is, um, you know, we're pretty explicit in the communication uh, around the announcement of the framework review that we're not going to a formulaic concept. We're not talking about add up this, divide by that, and the, if the average is you know greater than X, we do Y, and less than Z, we do something else. So um, I think we've made that pretty clear. So I, I don't uh, have an average uh, formula focus. Uh, and I think it's, it's judgment-based against the words we've got in that statement. Um, so that, I think maybe I'll just pause there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess what's interesting, too, is that uh, the vice chairman was saying it's not just core PCE as a you know, lagging indicator that we're looking at. It really is more about inflation expectations and a dashboard of other data as well. What do you watch on that front? Uh, I watch actual inflation. I watch inflation uh, expectations. Um, and as a lot of people have said, including the vice chair, there's a lot of different ways to measure inflation expectations, and it's uh, it's hard to get precise. I also try to, uh, as best I can, access uh, the minds of those people who are price setters in the economy. I spend a lot of time, as you know, engaged uh, with businesses. As we do, for example, a CFO survey, uh, which has pricing as one of the uh, key things they're looking at. I'm just trying multiple ways to see uh, what are people expecting in terms of uh, inflation and how much pricing power do they feel they have? I think you can learn a lot uh, there on the ground. 
So uh, you mentioned on the ground, uh, again, you're in Hughesville, Maryland right now, meeting with contacts. You're a person who's been very storied in the business world as well. Um, switching to the other side of the dual mandate from inflation to employment, we know that the Federal Reserve is really pinning its hopes on trying to get back to where we were before the crisis. Based off of your conversations with business owners, workers, those who have lost their job in the 5th District, the Richmond Fed, uh, how far away are we from full employment right now in November? Well, we're certainly far away from uh, where we were in February. Um, if you held participation constant, uh, the 6.9% unemployment that we've uh, reported would actually look like 9.4% uh, today. It's about 10 million uh, jobs, and that's about 6.6% fewer jobs uh, than we had before the crisis. And that compares to you know, at the peak of the Great Recession, we were down 6.3%. So we're still pretty far from uh, where I think would be uh, full employment. Now, the challenge we've got is that the jobs that have been surplused are disproportionately all in one type of job, you know, personal contact service workers. And those personal contact service workers are disproportionately young and they're disproportionately people of color. They're disproportionately in the bigger cities. Um, and uh, the jobs that are actually, if I talk to employers, I hear a lot of people talking about they can't find workers. And those employers who can't find workers are disproportionately in manufacturing, they're disproportionately in technology, they're disproportionately in healthcare, and they're disproportionately in some of the smaller towns. And so one of our challenges here is making that match. And it's hard to make a match when we may have a vaccine and it may roll out in a couple months and we may uh, go back to normal anytime soon. So people's willingness to invest in retraining or reskilling or invest in moving to a new geography is limited. So I think we've got a mismatch uh, issue right now that is leading some people to actually have to raise wages well before you would think it was full employment because we've got this, I'll call it a temporary mismatch between the people and the skills that have been surplused and the uh, the people, skills, locations where they need uh, to hire people. And that's a place I'm very uh, focused right now as I talk to employers, as I talk to uh, people who are out of work. So when we talk about building the bridge for some of those disproportionately affected people in the meantime, they've had unemployment insurance to turn to. Uh, but there's something interesting about how the pandemic emergency unemployment compensation, which is the extended benefits for longer term unemployment, in addition to pandemic unemployment assistance for gig contract workers that aren't normally eligible for UI, those benefits that are part of the CARES Act are going to expire December 26th. We know this is going to be longer than that, uh, even that these people will be out of work. What would that clip do based off of what you were just saying about how dire it is for those people to get help? And do you think that puts an onus on policymakers to do more? Well, those benefits do expire. And certainly uh, for a number of those individuals uh, affected, I think the question of whether they can get access to additional benefits to bridge them is, is an important issue. Um, I don't know how big a cliff that'll be for the economy on any given day. Uh, and the reason for that is there's been a lot of stimulus already put into the economy. And um, I've been intrigued with numbers that have shown excess savings, if you will, in the U.S. population, somewhere in the range of about a trillion two since April. And that trillion two, unlike most savings rates, is actually pretty evenly distributed uh, across the population. So if you want to think about it this way, the bottom quartile has about 300 billion in excess savings. Now, not everyone has that. And so some people who are really close to the edge are going to be in trouble. I was talking to a utility today about 
um, some of the issues in terms of people not paying their electricity bill. Those are people close to the edge and they will need a bridge of some sort. Um, but in total for the economy, I think that money will continue to bleed in to the economy, at least you know in the bottom quartile, bottom half for some time. And that'll bridge the total numbers somewhat. Um, and so I do think we've got to think about the folks at the bottom end. We do have to think about them individually and how they're going to bridge to what comes next. That's different from the impact on the economy in total. All right. Well, a very thorough conversation as the economy continues to face a pretty important inflection point with the COVID cases rising. But again, Tom Barkin, president of the Richmond Fed, thank you so much for joining us here on Yahoo Finance this afternoon. Thanks. Great to be with you.